Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. have been following along with us. We're in a series called The Chase. Been here for a few weeks. We got a few more weeks. Um, I'm excited about what's coming after the this series, but we'll get there later. Um, we're following the life of David. And up to this point, it's been like David is the man, right? We see him in the field worshiping God, even when nobody's looking. We see that he has this surrendered heart, that God's got this great future for him. And he even when he knows it's there, and he's not yet there. He's worshiping God in the field, and then how this whole future starts with a surrendered heart, right? And then we followed him up, and we, and we see that along reaching this destination, that there's going to be giants along the way, right? And we see David and Goliath, and we see David, the man, take down Goliath, and it's this, this picture of who Jesus is and fighting our battles for us, and that along the way, when we're in this journey in this thing called life, there are huge things that come up that can keep us from achieving the, the calling that's there before us, and, and we have a Savior who died for us, who has defeated those enemies and gives us and empowers us to keep moving forward. And then we, we see David with, with his, his boy Mo, right? And showing grace. And we, we learned about what grace is and, and, and what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then we get to David, 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 and, and Bathsheba. We, we get to this place where David is not somebody who we want to be like. David is not the picture of what we're trying to achieve. And so we've looked at the surrendered heart, and we've looked at the courageous heart, and we've looked at the gracious heart. And today, we're going to look at the flawed heart. And, and here's some news. You might not need me to tell you this. I didn't need anybody to tell me. But I'm no better than David. You're no better than David. We are born into a sinful world. We have a flawed heart heart. And the problem with this flawed heart is it's this kind of this nagging thing that tries to, that is fighting us from reaching whatever it is that God's called us to, from reaching whatever it is that's before us, whatever calling that is, no matter how big or small that calling may seem, it's magnificent in God's eyes. He's designed you, he's created you for that calling. And this flawed heart, this sin nature that is in all of us 
is trying to pull us back. And so the goal, the goal from the message today is, is that we can learn to defend ourselves from ourselves. That we can learn to defend ourselves from that flawed heart. Because I believe, I believe that there's something on the inside keeping us from reaching our destination. And that when we can see that God has fought that battle like, like in David and Goliath, we can see that God's given us this grace. And, and believe it or not, we talked about grace last week, but we're going to end up with grace this week. I'm, I'm telling you the ending now, right? And there's this sense of, of the fact that our flawed heart does not equal a failed calling. That there is a way to defend ourselves from that. And so that's kind of the goal of what we're getting into today. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in, uh, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to end up in chapter 12. I'm going to uh, kind of do the George paraphrase for a lot of it. Because it's kind of a story that I'm going to tell you. Um, we're going to read some verses that I think kind of lay the foundation for this scripture. Before we jump into it, I'm just going to pray for us as we get here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the ultimate authority that, that we can go and we can learn about your nature. We can learn about your character and we can learn that, that everything that is about you. And that gives us this authority and this guidance as we live our lives. I just pray now that as uh, I, I give this message that you've given to me, that we can just receive it this morning and that we can leave this, this place just as a people ready to do whatever you've called us to, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we got David and Bathsheba. How many people know the story, right? I've heard this story since I was a wee lad, right? Back in the, the Nazarene church and the holiness movement, right? There's this sense of David and Bathsheba. There's this sense of, okay, we've got sin, and it's not just any sin. It's like the bad, bad sin, right? Which, newsflash, all sin is bad, bad sin. But this passage is often used as a, as a, a almost a manipulative tool, to push for purity. So before I want to get in here today is I want you to, I want you to hear that we're talking about David and David does the, the no-no deed <laughs> with somebody that is not his spouse, right? And it, it's, it's about sexual sin. But what I want you to hear today is that your struggle may or may not be David's struggle. Right? But you do have a flawed heart. I have a flawed heart. So what I want you to hear is there's, there's some general principles that if you're, whatever your struggle may be, if it, I don't know your story, you don't know my story, but whatever the struggle may be, that there's principles that we can learn from David's story. So I don't want you to hear, well, I don't struggle like David, so this isn't for me. What I want you to hear is that David is a man after God's own heart, but he's a man right? And he has a flaw. He's human being. He's not perfect. He is not Jesus. There's so many times where he's a picture of Jesus. Jesus ends up coming from his line, but David is not Jesus, right? He is a man and he is flawed. And he, we, at this point in David's story, it's like a pivot moment. It's this moment where David begins to have a downfall and eventually loses the throne. And all this, this it's kind of like we've reached the point of, of the great point of the story and now we're going down and it just is a downward spiral and we'll see what kind of what happens here. But what I want us to see is that there's ways to prevent that downward spiral in our life. So if we're gonna pick up in chapter 11, I'm gonna start from very first verse and it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, so who goes off to war? Kings, right? What is David? He's a king. So what should David be doing? Okay, we're together. I like it. So in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, which is his like right-hand man leading the army. We talked about that last week. With the king's men and the whole Israelite army to destroy the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah. Dave, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
Oh, wait. This is the time. It's the springtime, right? Winter is over. The weather is good. This is when kind of war and battle kind of pick back up. And, and there's these, this land that God has said belongs to the Israelites. And I want you to go and take this land. So David, who is this warrior king, who has won all of these battles, had all of these things that the Lord has given him and provided for him. Now is the time for him to go out and continue doing the work that the Lord has set before him. But instead of going out, he stays home and sends his mighty men, right? And this is actually, there's, there's kind of some varying numbers if you go and you study it, but this is like 36, 72. It's not a whole lot of men, but it's like the SEAL team. Like it's the men. It's the guys that are like number one, nobody can beat them. And they've gone out and there's this siege and David stays home. It says one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Okay, so so let's stop here. David supposed to be at war. He's not at war. Dave, it says in the evening, David wakes up from a nap. Now, at this time, the weather's getting warmer. An afternoon nap, especially for royalty, was pretty common. But they would get up and they would still have most of the day. But this says he woke up in the evening time. So we've got this picture of David who's like, he's taking a nap, like Sunday afternoon, you're tired, you lay down after church, you should probably get up after like an hour or so. Last week, literally slept for like four hours, right? I got up and it was like, I just came out of a coma, right? And so David's in this place where he's just leisurely getting out of bed whenever he feels like it. He's strolling around. There's this picture of David, right? He's in his cargo shorts. He's got a button-down shirt that's unbuttoned, and he's wearing his Crocs, right? He's just very chill, hanging out. He's, there's this status of, I have arrived, right? I have arrived. I, we, I've defeated all of these people. I've got these mighty men that I don't even have to go out to battle anymore. They can take care of it themselves. I'll send them out to battle. I'm just going to chill. And when David begins to chill, and he no longer is on mission. He's no longer focused on the calling God has given him. Sin, temptation begins to pop up. As he's strolling around, not doing what he's supposed to be doing, he looks over and he sees the beautiful woman bathing on the roof, right? The first thing I want us to see this morning is that temptation is always lurking. And the first thing we have to do if we're gonna defend ourselves from ourselves is stay on guard. Stay on guard. The moment you stop pursuing, the moment you stop chasing is the moment you get into trouble. And now listen, I, I grew up, like I was saying earlier, I grew up in the Nazarene church and, and the, that comes from this holiness thing. And there's this, this kind of this trouble that holiness got into because it was like, hey, it's this list of rules. God calls you to be holy, which is true. So if you're supposed to be holy, you know, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't dance. You can't have any fun at all. There was time when you couldn't wear jewelry. You couldn't go to the movies. There's this sense of all these things you can't do. And the focus was all on what you're not supposed to do. David, don't stay home. David, don't walk around the palace. David, don't look at the roof. There's all these focus on the negative and it's depressing, right? It's not healthy. When you're, when you're told to be holy and the focus of being holy is just not doing what you're not supposed to do, you will always be focusing on the temptation. You will always be focusing on the sin and you will no longer be on guard. That, that, when I'm saying stay on guard, I'm not saying make sure you're always alert because that's depressing. That brings you down. What I'm saying is, is if you're on mission, 
If you're doing the thing God has called you to do, if you're where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, guess what? You're not gonna be where you're not supposed to be doing what you're not supposed to be doing. You follow, right? Like when we are focused on God and we are worshiping him and pursuing him, we're on on guard because we're, we're on mission. And I think that's where we have to get at. If we're gonna defend ourselves from ourselves, we have to say, you know what? Jesus is calling me to something greater. Jesus has put it, whatever it is on my life, whatever it is that, that he, the Holy Spirit has guided you to, calling you to, when you spend your time and your energy focusing on that, you can't focus on the negative. You can't let the temptation creep in. So David's walking around the roof and he looks over and he sees Bathsheba. Now, He hasn't sinned yet, right? There's this temptation that's there. And when he looks over, he's got the opportunity to look away. He's got the opportunity to close the curtain, whatever it is, to get back off of his roof, to stop looking around. But he doesn't, right? He sends out to his people and says, who is that woman? Who is that woman? Now, let me stop here for a second because like I was saying, I kind of grew up and this passage was often used to push purity on teenagers, right? And purity in teenagers is a good thing. I'm for that, but I'm not for kind of taking scripture and twist it to make it work. And what I mean is men don't look at the girls. Boys don't look at the girls. Girls don't bathe on the roof, right? Be modest. Modest is hottest, right? There's this thing that's, that the, the, you say at youth camps and all this other stuff, right? And the deal is, the deal is, it creates this sense of Bathsheba was at fault. Like, why is Bathsheba on the roof bathing in the first place? She wanted David to see her. She wanted David to, to, to walk out on the roof. But listen to me, the, the custom at this time Females have this thing that happened to them every month or so, and I'm glad that I'm not a female. I don't have to deal with that, but they had to cleanse themselves, right? And so Bathsheba, it has to be, they have to be cleansed with uh, natural water. So if you don't live near a lake or a stream or a river, guess what you could use? Rainwater. Guess where you would collect rainwater? On your roof. Right, so Bathsheba is not at fault here. Bathsheba is not doing something she's not supposed to do. She is doing, she is at home. her husband, the, the, the Hittite, Uriah, which we will read about in a second, he's off at war. And so she is just being Bathsheba, doing what she's supposed to do. And David looks out and he sees her, which something we need to know here is David obviously knows who she is. Because he's the king and she's close enough to his palace that he could sit on his roof and see her. The kings didn't let people they didn't know live next door to them, right? It was a um, security risk. And if we keep going and we read, it says that David sends out, he wants to know who this beautiful woman is. It says in Verse three, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elaham, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So there's this thing that happens before we get to her being pregnant, it tells us who she is. This is the first time in the passage that we hear who Bathsheba is. Before, it was a beautiful woman. It was a beautiful woman and unnamed. So you see the sense of David doesn't really care who she is. 
because when David is looking out there, she's unnamed in the passage. And then David sends out, and, and it's the wife of Uriah. Uriah not only is close as in friends with David, but close as in a neighbor with David. So it's his like one of his boys, one of his mighty men, one of his closest companions. He knows Uriah and he knows Bathsheba. He's sending this question, wanting who is this woman? Wanting to, because he's trying, he's letting that thought, he's letting that thought, he's letting that temptation run. Right? In 1 Corinthians, it says to keep, to catch every thought. In 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive, right? Paul's talking about how to, how to pursue that holiness life. And he's saying, hey, look, when these thoughts come in, the temptation is not the sin. It's when you let that thought run. It's when you let that thought keep going. It's when you let that temptation, when it becomes your focus and you're, you're wanting it to, to kind of twist things and make things happen so that you can pursue that temptation, whatever it may be. You, you, you take these places and you, you put walls down and you say, you know what, I'm gonna go to this place. I'm gonna do this thing I know I shouldn't do, but it gets me a little closer to that temptation. And we kind of see how close to that line we can get. And there comes a point where we get too close and we can't stop and we cross it. And it's like the sin just kind of from that point just floods out, right? And there's this point where David has this chance to stop. And the second thing I want us to see today is we have, the first is we have to stay on guard. The second is we have to build boundaries. David knew who she was. He had this thought. He had this temptation. And instead of stopping it, Instead of saying, hey, I have boundaries in my life. I need to have somebody come in. I need to get off the roof. I need to not walk on the roof in the evening time when it's typical for what I need to not look at the roof where it's typical for them to bathe. There's all these things that David could have set up these boundaries, and he doesn't. And it leads to the temptation. It leads to him asking the question. It leads to him falling into the sin, giving over to the temptation, giving over to the lust, giving over to the things that he had in his heart. He doesn't have this accountability. He doesn't have something lined up to protect him. We are fallen humans. We have to have people. We have to have places. We have to have boundaries in our life that will keep the temptation away. You have a flawed heart. You have a flawed heart that is turned, that built, turned towards sin. But when we surrender to Jesus, he begins to mold our heart and turn us towards him. And in order to get there, we have to have boundaries in our life. We have to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Hey, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. Maybe I shouldn't go to that place anymore. Maybe I should have somebody in my phone that when temptation comes in, I can call them and say, hey, pray for me. Or hey, I'm really being tempted right now. Can you come over? Or hey, and we begin to put things in our life to keep us from that temptation. We begin to remove things in our life that will draw us into that temptation. We have to build boundaries. Bathsheba gets pregnant, and David's like, oh no, (laughs) my sin has caught up to me. I'm going to be found out, or am I? There's a point in our life where we have a chance to confess when we sin. I read an article a few, probably been several years ago, and the guy talked about how whenever he begins to, or whenever he starts to fall, he, he struggled with, with anger and losing his temper. And there's this time where he, he kind of started to yell at one of his kids. And as he was yelling, he felt the Holy Spirit say, this is not a time that you're supposed to be yelling. And what he, he kind of, how he broke it down, he said, you know what? I was already yelling. I had already lost my temper. I was already sinning, sinning against God, sinning against my family, sinning against my child. And in that moment, I could have said, well, I'm here and kept going. But instead, I stopped. 
I'd already committed the sin, but I stopped. I repented, I confessed, I apologized to my child and then moved on. And he said, it didn't just fix it right there because a couple days later, I lost my temper again. But there's this point where, where we're sinned, that we've fallen short, where we can say, you know what, I'm stopping now. You don't have to keep going. You can stop where you're at. You can stop where you're at, repent, confess, do what you have to do. But in that moment, you don't have to keep going. The Holy Spirit will speak to you right when you're in the middle of that sin. You can feel that conviction. And David is here. He finds out he he sinned, and then the pregnancy should be like this warning sign, like, hey, you messed up. Now's a chance to stop. Now's a chance to confess. Now's a chance to repent. Now's a chance to let God handle this situation. There's consequences that come from it, but I'm telling you, children are a blessing. And even though it's not a wanted pregnancy, right, that this this can be the heir to the throne. This can be the one. But, and there's this, this promise that could come from this child. Stop now, David. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead of letting God handle it, he worries about the destruction that will come from a confession because sin has consequences. And just because you confess doesn't mean those consequences are going to go away. Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean those consequences go away. And David decides he doesn't want to deal with those consequences. And so he's going to fix it himself. Bathsheba gets pregnant, and he sends out, and he calls out for Uriah, right? Uriah's off at battle. He sends a messenger to Joab saying, hey, send Uriah back to me. So Uriah comes back to David. He walks in. He's like, Uriah, what's up, buddy? How's it going? How's things going at war? He's asking how the warfare is going. Is everything going well? And, And that's not David's motive, right? He knows, and there's a part of me when I'm reading this story, like it doesn't say this, but David has sent messengers to get Bathsheba. David, messengers have come back to David from Bathsheba. People know what's going on, right? He sends a messenger to get Uriah. So there's a part of me that wonders like, does Uriah know? You know what I'm saying? Because if you keep reading this story, David's like making small talk with Uriah. And he says, hey, you know what? You're, you're a mighty man. Thanks for updating me with how the war is going. You've done a great job. Why don't you go home and wash your feet? All right. Wash your feet, a euphemism. Go home and be with your wife. You know what I'm saying? It brings a whole new meaning to washing your feet, okay? We're not going to have any foot washing services here, okay? <laughs> but no, there's this sense. He says, go home. Go home and wash your feet. Go home and be with your wife. And what's the, what's the strategy here? Okay, Bathsheba's pregnant. I bring Uriah home. He sleeps with Bathsheba. Okay, it's Uriah's child, not mine. We're good. So Uriah goes home and sleeps on the front porch, doesn't go in, doesn't wash his feet. He sleeps on the front porch and David wakes up the next morning and some messengers come to David who were obviously spying on Uriah to figure out what's gonna happen. And, and it says that in verse 11, it says, Uriah said, or David's asking Uriah, why didn't you wash your feet? Why, why, aren't you with, why didn't you go cuddle with your wife? And it's, Uriah says to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go home to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Look at this nobility. Look at this picture of these two guys. You've got Uriah, 
who is told by the king, by the commander, by the one in charge, come home and wash your feet. Come home. He's given permission to not be at war. David just doesn't go to war. He just stays home and is comfortable. And he gives permission to Uriah to come home and do the same thing. And Uriah says, there's no way. There's no way that I could do such a thing. There's no way that I could, could come home and be comfortable when my men, when your men are fighting, sleeping in tents, dealing with these conditions, not having their best life. There's no way that I could do such a thing. Hello, David. This is option chance number two, right? You've got the pregnancy. That should have been warning. Time to confess. Time to stop. Time to step out. But David says no. He brings Uriah back. Uriah's like, hey, I'm not going to do this thing. That should be another moment for David to feel that conviction, to feel the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you shouldn't have done this. This is, Don't fix it yourself. So often we get stuck in our sin and our temptation and we want to fix it ourselves. But God is saying, no, let me handle it. I know it doesn't. it's no, not going to be easy to confess that sin. It's not going to be easy to deal with the consequences. But I am with you. I am fighting for you. I am on your side. David, stop. But David doesn't stop. He takes another step in the wrong direction. He brings Uriah home. He brings Uriah to the palace and says, hey, let's share a meal. Let's uh, have some shots. He gets Uriah drunk. He says, this will do it. If he's drunk, he's not going to be able to say no to washing his feet. He's not going to be able to say no to cuddling with his wife. He's not going to be able to say no to this thing. So I'm going to get him drunk. So David gives him this big meal, gets him drunk, and sends him home. At verse thir- in verse 13, it says, At David's in- invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep, on his mat, among his master's servants, he did not go home. Wow. There's this powerful moment right here. This, pow- this man that we've spent the last three weeks looking at how godly and awesome he is. So often we can do things and we get in a place where we get prideful because we think, man, I've really been living for God. I've really been going to church regularly. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. We get to this place where we're like, I've really got this, right? We've gotten to this place where we've been following David and we've been hyping him up as a man after God's own art. And then now we see this place that the drunk soldier is a better man than, a, than David. The drunk soldier is more righteous than David, the sober king. How did we get here? A third, a third chance. A third chance for David to say, I can't fix this myself. I can't defeat my sin myself. That's a third chance for David to turn around. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he, takes, he writes a letter to Joab saying, hey, here's Uriah. I want you to send him into battle where the, the fiercest battling is going on. And then I want you to retreat and leave him there. David said, I want you to murder Uriah. And it's, it's this weird dynamic because Joab doesn't ask questions. And you know who delivers the letter? Uriah. He's literally carrying his death sentence back to war, hands it over to the leader, and the leader reads it, doesn't question David, but obeys him. 
And he knows that this is what you have to see. This is a siege, right? They're not going in and taking over. They're like waiting outside of the walls. They're letting the, the, they're trapped the people in the city. And they're basically letting them run out of food and run out of whatever they have. And there's this strategy for warfare. But for some reason, the Joab decides to change his strategy just for a moment and he sends some men up to approach the wall. And as they get there, there's guys on top of the wall with arrows, bow and arrows, right? And obviously some men with swords and shields is not going to stand against these guys. And so they begin to fire. The battle takes place and not just Uriah, but Uriah and several other men die. David had him murdered. There's this unbelievable shock in this story. Like, how could David do this? The letter comes back to David from Joab, and he says, hey, we changed our strategy a little bit, which is, this is crazy, because, hey, we changed our strategy a little bit. Um, We sent some people up, and we tried to take over the wall, and David's hearing this, and he gets mad. He becomes like irate. Like, why? Why would you? Did you not learn from a past battle where we ran up and it backfired and we died from the bow and arrows? Did, did you not learn from that battle? He begins to get angry at Joab for doing the thing that David told him to do. Like, why would you change the strategy? Why would? You? And the, the servant continues to read the letter and he says, oh, and, and your servant Uriah is dead among other men. And David's like, oh, oh, I see. And he calms down and there's a sense of relief because his sin has not been found out because his sin is now taken care of. Bathsheba, Bathsheba hears that her husband has died and goes into mourning. And after she's had the typical seven days of mourning, David wastes no time in making her his wife. And David's like, hey, I did it. I did it. I covered up my sin. But listen, the cost of lying about your sin is infinitely higher than the cost of confessing your sin. David didn't have boundaries to keep his sin from sinning on sinning on sinning. And he's come to this point where he had all of these chances to confess all of these chances to give it back to God, all of these chances to surrender. And now he thinks he took care of it himself, right? And there's, there's times in our life, let's just be real. There's times in our life today, not David's story, my story, where I fall short and I sin and I think I've gotten away with it. And I think there's not been any consequences. I think, you know what? Maybe, maybe God was gracious to me this time and it's okay, right? David thinks he's gotten away with it, but there have been so many so much cost to this point. And David is blind to it. He, there's so much unnoticed brokenness in the wake of David's choices, yet he feels none of it. He's at a place where he's relieved that he has committed murder. Sin has a way of hardening our heart. Sin has a way of getting us to a place of actually feeling relief that we haven't been caught rather than relief from finding grace from God. And David is at that point. And then you've got this scene that happens in chapter 12. Your boy Nathan, who becomes like almost like David's conscience, right? He's, it's like David's buddy comes in and just 
jumps into this story, right? And it's like, okay, is it a parable? What is, why is he telling this story? If I'm David, I'm like, what's going on here? But he begins to tell this story of, of this poor man. And this poor man goes out and he buys this ewe lamb, which it's like a cute little puppy lamb, okay? And, and it's, it becomes like a family pet. He tells this story that and the, this poor man didn't have any money, but he saved up and he got this lamb. And this lamb became like one of his children, right? That it, it ate at the table. It drank from his drink. The kids played with it. They loved it like one of their own. If you have a pet in this room, you know what's going on, right? Like I remember a few years back, Mozzie got into something and it was like actually poisoned him and his liver was starting to fail and he was real lethargic and we had to take him to the vet and he spent like four or five days in the vet. Like we, we could go see him, but we couldn't take him home because they were having to do all this stuff to him. Because, and it was like, if we wouldn't have taken him in there, he would have died because his liver was failing for whatever he got into it. And there's that moment, it's like, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> and I was even at this place where I was like, it's a dog, but it's not a dog. Like it's family. You know what I'm saying? And we all know if you have a pet of any kind, you know how it becomes family. And so Nathan is telling this story. It's like they have this lamb and it's not just like a lamb from the flock. It's like, it's like family. It's their pet. But then there's this other, there's this rich guy. And this rich guy, he's got all of these sheep. He's got all of this cattle. He's got all of this land. He's got everything he could ever need. And this traveler comes to visit him. And when this traveler gets here, he needs to, to uh, kill a lamb so that they can have food. He said, okay, well, I'm not going to take any of mine. And he goes out and he takes the ewe lamb from the poor guy. And he kills it. And that's what they use for the traveler. And David hears this story, and listen to what he says. He says, then David said to Nathan, this is chapter 12, verses thir- verse 13. It says, no way, I'm getting ahead of myself. David hears the story, and he, he, he's angry. He burns with anger against this man. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. This is chapter 12, verse 5. In verse 6, he says, He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David hears this story and he's so mad. How could he do such a thing? You know what? He needs to pay four times over. David has lost sight of the grace he once showed Mo last week, right? He's no longer giving that grace. He says he'll pay for it four times over. Then Nathan looks at him in verse seven. Nathan said to David, you are this man. And David's like, whoa, hold up. It goes through, uh, basically, David says he'll pay for it four times over. Nathan says, well, this is what God says to you. You're going to pay for it four times over. Tells him all these evil things, these terrible things that are going to happen to David and his family. And then David looks back in verse 13, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Wow. David finally feels the weight of his sin. He decides to confess. The Lord has taken away your sin, David. Nathan says back, you are not going to die, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Your sin has consequences. We may not believe it, but sin always equals death. Always equals death. 
all throughout scripture in your own life when sin has overtaken you. Look at your own past. When sin has overtaken you, has it not ended in the death of a relationship or the death of a, a vibrant part of your life or, or somehow what sin always brings destruction. And David is here and the point when he breaks is after he's done all of this sin and there's no way to, to cover it up anymore. He's been found out. His sin is out there and he is broken because of it. After this point, David goes and he actually, he writes Psalm 51. But David's at this place and the, the boy that, that is going to be, that is born, gets sick. And David begins to mourn because he knows the outcome. And he begins to fast and pray and, and hope that God will show grace and mercy. And the people around him are like, David, hey, uh, why are you acting like the kid's dead? He's just sick. And they're like, he's doing all these things of, of what happens once the kid, once somebody actually dies. And so David's fasting and he's praying and he's weeping and, and all this stuff is going on. And then the child dies. And the David's people are actually too afraid to go tell him. And so they're kind of talking about each other like, oh man, what do we do? I mean, how do we tell the king, like, the, the boy is dead. What, what are we going to do? And David overhears them, and he asks them, he said, is the boy dead? And they said, yes. And so David gets up, he goes back to his throne, and goes back to being king. He goes back to the normal day-to-day -day life, and they're, they're baffled. They're like, hey, David, uh, you're supposed to be mourning. You're supposed to be sad. All the stuff you were doing while he's alive, that's what you're supposed to be doing now, but you were doing it when he's alive. Now that he's dead, you're not doing it anymore. And there's this confusion. And David looks at him and he says in verse 23, but now that the boy is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David is crushed. His sin has devastated him. And this is a point in the story where if you go back and you kind of read commentaries, you see that, that this is the first time that David speaks from the heart since this whole thing began. You can go and you can read Psalm 51. Actually, I'm going to do that now. I want to read the whole Psalm 51. And we can just get a, a feel for how David, what's going on in David's mind, what he's going through. Starting with verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. There's this repentance. There's this change of his heart. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right within your verdict and justified when you judge me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So David, there's some more of Psalm 51, but you get that there's this point where David is saying, I have sinned, Lord, give me your grace. See, there's three points. The first one is stay on guard. 
The second one is build boundaries. And the third one is to seek grace. Seek grace. You have a flawed heart, but there's this beautiful picture of what grace is. We talked about it last week and it was like only scratching the surface because grace is so much deeper. Grace is what allows us to even know that God's, God exists. Grace is, grace is what allows us to have salvation. If you're looking at it like a house, like you've got grace is this big, it's a grace house, right? And salvation, the point where we're saved, where we surrender our life to Christ is just the porch, it's just the, the, the salvation grace is just the porch of the house. You kind of got the doorway and you walk into the doorway and it's like justifying grace where, where you're, you're forgiven and now you're justified because Jesus' blood covers your sin, right? Sin equals death. Well, Jesus' death now just covers your sin. So you're forgiven. Salvation is yours. You are justified. You are forgiven. You're not going to hell. But then there's this, uh, th- that's just the door. That's just the porch and the door. Grace has so much more. You, if you walk into the house, there's this sense of, of uh, uh, purifying grace, of, of changing us, a healing grace. The, the theological word is sanctifying, right? The setting apart or making of holy. It's where your heart is. It's not just that you're forgiven. It's not just that your sin is covered, but it's that you don't have to keep sinning. It's that your heart can be changed. That flawed heart, when seeking grace, can become an unflawed heart. That God can take it and he can change it so that our desire is no longer to go back to that sin. David's desire is no longer to go back to to walking around on the rooftop and looking down at Bathsheba. David's heart, his desire is God, the Holy Spirit in him. That's the point of this message is is that we need to stay on guard and build boundaries but know that we are covered by grace and grace gives us the power to change. There's this infinite hope that comes from following Christ and it's the hope that I don't have to stay flawed. I don't have to stay evil. That God is changing me. My, My character is becoming like God's character. I think that 1 John says it this way. It says, my children, I write to you so that you will not sin. The goal of this message is I don't want us to sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has paid the price for our sins. He died on the cross and gives us the power not to sin anymore. This is not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sin is real. Sin causes death. Sin must be dealt with, and it's dealt with by grace. Stay on guard build boundaries, and seek grace. Give grace to others and know that grace has been given to you. Sin does not have the final word. Sin is not victorious. But we have to be willing. We have to be willing to let God fight the battle. We have to be willing to confess our sin. We have to be willing to let our sin be dealt with and know that you, when you follow Christ are no longer the struggling sinner, but you are the child, the heir to the throne, that you are righteous in God's sight because of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you paid the price. We thank you that our story doesn't have to end with the life falling apart like David in this story. That our story doesn't have to end with the fact that we've fallen short 
but that we are covered by your grace and you give us the ability to move forward. Lord, as we battle whatever battle we have going on, as we face whatever temptation is before us, let us stay on guard. Lord, give us this calling, this passion that we can't turn from, that we stay so focused on it that we don't end up staying at home from war. But Lord, we go to fight and battle with you on our side, with you fighting for us, before us, Lord. Let us build boundaries to avoid the temptation in the first place, removing anything from our life that we might need to remove, building up walls where we need to build walls, breaking off relationships, Lord, where we need to break off relationships, building relationships where we need to build relationships. Speak to us, the Holy Spirit, the boundaries we need to put in place. And Lord, let us seek your grace. Let us fall on our face before you. Blot out our transgressions. Give us a clean heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.